Amos 5, 21 to 24. I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, and the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps, but let justice roll down the waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Acts chapter 2, verses 41 to 47. So those who welcomed this message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. All came upon everyone, because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions, goods, and distribute the proceeds to all, as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food, having the goodwill of all the people, with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to this number those who were being saved. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. We'll start with a couple of questions. The, just for reflection to begin with. What are the things about our culture and society that you don't like? Just to reflect for a moment. I imagine there are some things in our culture and society that you do not like. I do not like that Taco Bells are so far from my house. That might be a silly one. Perhaps there are other things. What's that? I don't like that Gaffers is gone. Oh, that Gaffers is gone. Mm. Yeah. Then uh, I also want you to consider, and some of these might actually be the same answer, but consider for a moment, what are the things about our culture and society that Jesus wouldn't like? Just to reflect on for a moment. We don't have to provide an answer quite yet because these are, could be quite... Uh, profound answers, or at least very long answers. What are the things about our culture and society that Jesus wouldn't like? Keeping the Sabbath holy? Mm. Yeah. And perhaps maybe asking this question in the inverse format. And this is one I, I, I do really want your feedback. Uh, I mean, really want you to consider the answers to this. What is important to Jesus? Like, actually important to Jesus. I, I, uh, some of you may remember the movie Facing the Giants. Um, you know, a high school football team uh, turns to Jesus and they start winning their games. I don't know that Jesus... Like, that that uh, high school football games are like the most important thing to Jesus... I think that they are important to Jesus, but probably not like the, the highest thing. Maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like, you know, there might be other things on the list that might be just slightly above high school football games. Uh, so what are the things that are actually important to Jesus? What, what do you read in Scripture? Maybe that's one way to kick this off. 
What's that? His sheep. His sheep. Is that for like comfortable clothing or? Yeah. Yeah, his brothers and sisters, his children, the people uh, that he pursues. Absolutely. Other, other things. What, what's important to Jesus? Salvation, spreading the gospel. Loving others. Loving your neighbor. Loving Jesus. Justice and mercy. Somebody's on theme. <laughs> spreading his news. Yes, the good news, absolutely. Yeah, anything else? Other thoughts? I mean, these are, these are all great. Yes, absolutely. Um, and and I, I really think that, you know, we could, we could kind of sum all of these things up in the way that we love people and the way that we love God. Um, I think that that's probably at the top of Jesus's priority list, the way that we love people and the way that we love God. Perhaps you've heard that, you know, in what is the greatest commandment? Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, but notice that there is a significant word in that expression, uh, the way we love people and the way we love God. And it's, you see, it's not the way that you love people and God. It's the way that we love people and God. The former is important. The way that you love people and love God, that is important. But oftentimes we end up getting so absorbed in the me part of it all. The way that I love people and the way that I love God. Or my life, the way that I conduct my life. That we forget that we are part of a collective. We forget that we are a people of God, not a person of God. That God has called all. And so that we is important uh, in the life of the church, that, that we acknowledge the us of it all. Two weeks ago, we talked about communal piety in this series on means of grace. That is the devotion of the group of people, the collective, the church. Uh, and, and that is the way that we love God. Today, we are going to look at the other side of that greatest commandment, the way that we love people. So, here's another fun little question. There, I'll go ahead and say there are dozens of right answers. There are more wrong answers than right answers, though, but there are dozens of right answers. Uh, can anybody tell me why the church exists? For what purpose? To spread God's word? Certainly. Yes, General. What's that? To praise God? Yes, absolutely. For fellowship? For fellowship? Sure. To spread the word? To spread the word? Certainly. Other thoughts? And I said that there were wrong answers to this because I'll, I'll tell you right now, uh, the church does not exist to, um, to be a war machine. <laughs> we, we don't like arm uh, church members so that we can go out and kill people. That's not why the church exists. So there are wrong answers to all of this. Uh, but yes, the, these, these answers are, are absolutely true. And, and again, you know, I'm going to oversimplify things for the, for the sake of time. Uh, and that is... The church exists to be, and these words are carefully chosen, 
The church exists to be the countercultural body of global transformation. The church exists to be the countercultural body for global transformation. This means that the things in our culture that do not reflect the love of Christ, those things we have been charged with transforming. That's the whole attribute of the Christian faith, that there be transformation. And it starts with us. It starts with my transformation and your transformation. And we become transformed by grace and the love of Christ to be people saved by grace through the faithfulness of Christ. Yes, that is the first transformation. But the second transformation emanates from us pours out from us into the world. Our transformation means nothing if there isn't a further transformation. Once we get to the, uh, to the end of the Bible, when we get into the book of uh, Revelation, we have John saying, And there I saw a new heaven and a new earth. God is the God of transformation. Right? All along, God is working to bring transformation through the people, for the people, by the people, all of the other things they can include people there. God is the God of transformation. And as such has called us to also be transformed moments, uh, transformed people each moment. So re recall now that as we've been in this series on means of grace, that a means of grace is a term in Wesleyan heritage that's similar to spiritual disciplines, but most specifically, means of grace are ways in which God works invisibly in the disciples of Christ, hastening, strengthening, and confirming faith so that God's grace pervades in and through disciples. That's a very long definition. What it comes down to mean is that means of grace are ways in which God pushes grace through us, that we might receive grace and then that grace might then come through us into others. Wesley taught that God's grace is unearned. There's nothing that we can do to earn God's grace. It's just freely given. That's the love of God. And, and that we are not to be idle, waiting to experience grace but we are to engage in the means of grace. In other words, we're not meant to just wait around for God's grace and just let it pour over me. Whenever, whenever it happens, it happens. I'm going to keep doing my life the way that it is. No, no, no. This is a very active faith, the faith that says, no matter what I'm doing, I'm going to be doing it for and by the grace of God. And so what we mean by this is that grace is a sort of call and response. God calls out with grace and asks for our response of grace. Grace is a give and receive. We experience grace as we give grace. Grace is a gift to be given. It is a gift freely given to us that is meant to then be given, but not the kind of gift where you receive it and then you pass it along to somebody else and you no longer have it. It's the same kind of gift as the flame, right? Whenever we take some from the flame and that flame is freely given, it remains burning. 
and then is shared. It is a gift meant to be given. That is this grace. God extends grace to us, unmerited. There's nothing we can do to earn it, so that we might be transformed toward holiness and perfected in love. But grace transforming us is not simply a get-out-of-hell-free card. That's not grace. It's, grace isn't just simply so that we can then get into heaven once this earthly life is over. It's a part of it, sure. But that's not its entirety. Rather, we are transformed by grace so that we can transform by grace. We are transformed by grace so that we, we can transform, do the transforming by grace. In other words, the call of the church, the body of Christ, is to be the countercultural body of global transformation. And we do this through communal works of mercy. So here's where we get into the means of grace, really. You might recall we've been through this journey talking about individual works of piety, our individual acts of devotion. And then we looked at communal works of piety, how we as a community devote ourselves to God. Last week, we looked at individual works of mercy, and these are the ways in which we extend the grace of God in mercy and compassion and love toward other people. And today, we look at the communal works of mercy. And these are some of the hardest for us to do, and they're some of the most imperative for us to do. Because this is the way that the world is changed and transformed into holiness and perfected in love. So there, there are many different uh, formats of communal mercy or the collective community working towards mercy. Uh, but two that I really want us to focus on today. Uh, the first is seeking justice. Seeking justice. So another question. What does it mean to seek justice? That's a, that's a harder one, isn't it? To endeavor to make sure that everybody gets justice. They get, they get what they deserve out of love as Christians. To, to make sure that everybody gets what they deserve out of love as Christians. Interesting, interesting. I gotcha. Other thoughts? To seek justice. To do what's right? To do what's right? Sure, yeah. Well, to seek justice for others is important. I yes. Mean, not, not the kind of justice that most people think of, but uh, to be sure that they are treated rightly, justly. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. To seek that. Yeah, yeah, to, to, to seek justice for other people, to ensure that they are treated rightly. Uh, the, the Hebrew word for justice is mishpat. The Greek word for justice is diakosune. I don't know why you might want to know those words, but in case you do, there they are. Uh, but what's important about those words is they don't, in Scripture, don't refer to human justice as much as they refer to God's justice. And can anybody guess what Single word defines God's justice. I'll give you a hint. We've been talking about it for four weeks. Love, yes, but grace. Yes, 
Grace is the single word that defines God's justice. So whenever we're talking about seeking justice, we're talking about seeking grace for people. Uh, when Amos, and we, we uh, had read for us this morning, Amos chapter 5, 21 through 24, when Amos calls to let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, yes, we might attribute that to Martin Luther King Jr., and he did use it appropriately. It was originally said several thousand years before uh, by famous Amos, before he was making cookies. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like, ever, like an ever-flowing stream. What does that look like? What does justice and righteousness flowing look like? This might be a little bit more of a rhetorical question. I want us to really consider how that could look in the life of the church. Uh, and really, in order to fully grasp what he is asking whenever he is demanding that justice and righteousness flow from the community, we must really look at the book of Amos as a whole. So, Amos chapter 1, verse 1. I'm not going to go through the entire book like that. Uh, but to sum it up, Amos was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. Okay? And spoke most directly to and start pushing buttons, the wealthy and the people in power spoke directly to them uh, because of their ill treatment of those who could not defend themselves, namely the poor. In other words, in the northern kingdom of Israel, we had all of these people who were taking advantage of the poor so that they could build their summer and winter homes and their towers of ivory so that they could go live uh, vacation over here and then vacation over here at the expense of the poor who had to keep working and had no say in the society. And so Amos calls them out and says, what good is your vacation home when the poor are suffering? But it was not just those who are wealthy in power that Amos calls out. He also, oh, this is going to be difficult to hear. He also condemns the complacent. Those people who sit idly by and claim that the injustices in their community are not their problem. Harken back to Genesis Cain responds to God, am I my brother's keeper? Probably one of the dumbest questions in scripture. Yes, of course you're your brother's keeper. Yes, of course you are your sister's keeper. Yes, that's what we are called to love, compassion, mercy, grace. And so Amos calls out the complacent because they sit there and watch all of the injustices that are happening and turned a blind eye to it and say, that's not my problem. Somebody else is going to need to do something about that. And maybe they raise their complaints every now and then to some people in power. There's litter on my street. Maybe they raise complaints to the people in power saying there's too much violence in my area. But they don't do anything about it. And they certainly don't do anything out of grace and love. Instead, they just simply sit back and benefit from whatever life they're living complacent to the injustices in their community. So when Amos, on behalf of God, demands justice and righteousness, he is calling for the whole community 
to take action in raising up the lowly and lowering the haughty. The whole community, especially the complacent. Seeking justice as the church means that we engage in the uncomfortable conversations. Oh, that's so necessary, that we actually talk about the uncomfortable things. And then make some impact to transform the community on behalf of those who suffer. We are transformed by grace so that we can transform by grace. The second in communal acts of mercy is ending oppression and discrimination. Now, you know, I'm going to start using more buzzwords, uh, and if you're concerned that they're my buzzwords, I'll let you know John Wesley had these 300 years ago, so I'll leave them to him. They're also adopted into the United Methodist Book of Discipline, so you can take it up with General Conference. There is no doubt, no doubt, that systems in our world exist. The United Methodist Church is a system. There's no doubt that these systems exist and that those systems oppress and discriminate against people. Because we're not very compassionate whenever it comes to the systems that we establish. For instance, for instance, there are still churches in our community, yes, in Mobile, Alabama, in the 21st century, by the way, uh, that wouldn't allow my wife, pastor at Ashland Place, to come in and preach because she's a woman. Yes, those churches are in our community. There are still neighborhoods in our community that do not welcome people of color. Yes, in our community. If you want to know more about it, Google the expression redlining. I encourage you, write that one down. There are people in our community, I'm talking to myself now too, who see the poor and homeless population in our community as less than human. I'll tell you flat out that the love of Christ does not exist within discrimination and impression. It does not exist there. And if you have a problem with that statement, then please have a conversation with me afterwards or go ahead and report me to the district superintendent. But the love of Christ does not exist in discrimination and oppression. Wesley himself charged Methodists with ending slavery a century before it actually did. And many Methodists marched to end segregation and in support of the Civil Rights Movement. We've long been a people who act in the means of grace to transform communities. And if you haven't seen this particular documentary yet, there was one that came out a few years ago, and it was actually the first movie I watched whenever I moved here to Mobile, uh, involuntarily. I didn't choose it. I was just kind of told to watch this. Uh, and it's... Uh, called Mobile in Black and White. It's a fascinating documentary about the uh, history and, quite frankly, still prevalent racism in the Mobile community. I told you I'm going to be using buzzwords today. You should definitely look it up. Mobile in Black and White. Anytime 
any time a person is treated as less than because of their race, color, gender identity, socioeconomic status, sexual identity, disability status, age, nationality, parent status, religious belief, or any other thing that establishes the, community, the church as the community of justice that does not have the love of Christ in it. The church is a wonderfully, beautifully diverse body of humanity. Powerfully diverse. And yet so frequently, we let the church look like me. And that's as far as we want to go with it. Even though Jesus was a Middle Eastern Jew, poor, homeless, who welcomed women into his inner circle long before it was acceptable, who called out people in power because they stayed in power just simply to live lives of luxury. And I have no problem saying all of this because if I were to read to you from the United Methodist Book of Discipline, paragraph 40, this is section 6, titled, A Call to Inclusiveness, then you would hear me say these words. Inclusiveness means openness, acceptance, and support that enables all persons to participate in the life of the church, the community, and the world. Therefore, Inclusiveness denies every semblance of discrimination. It's been around for eight years now, that statement. Nothing new. However, do note that we are not simply called to include people who are different or look different or act different or talk different or what have you. We are called to fight for the rights uh, and protections and lives and liberties of people who suffer discrimination, oppression, and injustice in our world. The community that's described in Acts chapter 2 did this very well. And they did this by holding all things in common and spending time together. Spending time together. How often do we spend time with people who are different from us? Amos calls for the community to abandon the false pretense that their worship is all God desires. I hate, Amos reports from God, and despise your festivals. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings you put in the offering plate, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your hymns. I will not listen to the melody of your piano or organ. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Sorry, that was the Micah rendition of that passage. Yes, even today, the thing that is most important to God isn't our worship. It is our service. The way that we engage with other people. More than worship, God desires the grace-filled love and compassion for all people. And God has called the whole church, the whole church, not just a few people, to bring about this transformation. So here's my challenge for you, church. Be 
the church that transforms the world. Be the church that transforms the world. It's not changing into holiness on its own. In fact, some of us might argue it's doing quite the opposite on its own. If we want to see the world as God has called it to be, then we need to start showing up as the agents of change and transformation with grace and love in our hearts for all people to seek justice, to end discrimination and oppression, to be there for the people who suffer because it is our responsibility. And there's no hiding from that. We need to stop being complacent, church. And we need to start getting outside of these walls and making a difference in the life of those people who live right there, right there, back there. Would you go that far south? Because right there, too. Be the church that transforms the world because we are called to be the countercultural body of global transformation. And by this, we experience the grace of God that has called us to be transformed ourselves. Let us pray.